0: Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin and I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And for this episode, which we're recording remotely on the 7th of November of 2020, I'm delighted to welcome two quilters. They are Dr. Carolyn Maslumi, who lives in Westchester, Ohio, and Felicity Khan, who joins us from her home close to Cape Town in South Africa. Dr. Carolyn Maslumi is a quilter, quilt scholar, curator, and founder of the Women of Colour Quilters Network. She's received many honors, including being named as a National Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment for the Arts in 2014, which is the highest award given to traditional artists in the United States. Carolyn is also a trained aerospace engineer. Felicity Khan has been sewing all of her life. She's formed several patchwork and quilting groups and teaches these crafts to others. Felicity was formerly a board member of the Good Hope Quilters Guild, which is the Western Cape of South Africa's patchwork and quilting umbrella body, and she served as its outreach liaison person. Felicity Khan and Carolyn Maslumi, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I want to ask you both to start by telling me a little bit about your quilting life pre-COVID. What kind of um, role did quilting play in your life pre-COVID. Carolyn, can I ask you to start with that one?
1: I wear many hats. I'm a curator as well as a quilt maker and a writer. Pre-COVID, I was very busy with the Women of Colour Quilters Network, which is a network I founded. It's the largest organization of black quilters in the United States. And we were very busy with our exhibitions. We had three traveling exhibitions that were going on. It required, for me, a lot of travel and interaction with museums that were hosting our exhibitions. Then came COVID, and it changed everything insofar as the travel itinerary for the exhibitions. So, life has changed. Life has changed a lot.
0: And were you doing much quilting yourself?
1: Well, I have to find a balance between quilting and curating and running the organization. And there actually is no balance. You can't do it all. I often say there's no such thing as a superwoman. Not really, if you're realistic. Something has to suffer. So, of late, the quilting suffers because I just can't find time to quilt like I want to and curate shows and write books.
0: And Felicity, what about you? What did your quilting life look like pre-COVID? Well, pre-COVID, I worked quite consistently
2: with my group doing a monthly project, which was a common project for everybody. And then each individual would work on their preferred pieces that they wanted to do. I went out to the outreach group, which is two hours drive from where I live, and met with them and saw what they were doing. And I was very pleased to see that they had started to work with the primary schools in the area. The outreach group is in a very impoverished area, so they depend Heavily on donations. So that was really um, pleasing that they were able to do that, and um, I was glad to
0: be able to go out and see them again. It sounds like you're involved in two groups, is that right? The outreach group and then a group that's more local to you? I run the one group, which is the
2: local group. The outreach group that I was involved on a monthly basis with, I have now handed on to a local woman. My local group, the origins was at a point when we had an exhibition at our local church that we went to. I then developed a group from there. I don't take the group too big. We have been running with 10 people for about seven years now. So we've become a very tight little group. And although quilting is the basis, obviously, of the group, there is a whole lot of other support that happens within the group. And before COVID, were you meeting regularly in person? We meet once a month and we really have a full day where we start at 11 in the morning. Everybody brings something to eat and this is a very big cultural thing for us. So people bring their favorite foods and we have a lot of fun. Yeah, we we have one of the members who Bakes the best bread. So there's always a big fight over who gets the crust. So we do have a really good day. And there's lots of exchanges, not just about quilting, but because the group has become so tight, there's a real intimacy now. And so people share sometimes quite serious personal issues, which thankfully everybody is able to contribute something positive towards or give
0: advice or make suggestions. That's great. Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit more about your group, the Women of Colour Quilters Network, this group that you formed some decades ago now, I think, right?
1: It's been almost 40 years. Seems like yesterday, but it's been almost that long. As I said, it's the largest group of African-American quilters in the United States. When it was formed, I was thinking in terms of creating an organization where we could not only commune together, but also disseminate information about the cultural significance, as well as the monetary value of the quilts made by African-Americans. Because it came at a time when African-American quilts were very popular and being sold at galleries around the United States for enormous sums. And I just wondered if any of those funds were actually trickling down to the artists. And it turned out that they were not. So anyway, there needed to be a group to let people know about the actual value of their work. That was the origin.
0: Okay. And in the period immediately pre-COVID, how was this group manifesting? Were you ever meeting in person or? Well, it's such a large group. We used to have
1: chapters around the United States. However, at this time, we've dwindled in numbers because so many women have passed on and men. The average age is 74 to 102. Yeah, we've not been able to interest young people in the work that we're doing.
0: Right. But in terms of how you kept in touch? Oh,
1: we usually
0: meet and gather
1: at museums when we have openings. People that are in the shows and friends and family gather for those openings. And also we've had retreats from time to time. So there's nothing formal so far as a national meeting or anything like that. The meetings surround our travels with the actual exhibitions.
2: So, Carolyn, am I correct in understanding that you don't belong to a particular group that meets on a regular basis like I do once a month or once a quarter?
1: I belong to many, many quilt guilds and many, many organizations. But To actually be in a quilt guild that's meeting every month, I have not done that for, geez, maybe 15 years.
0: So the very different organizations that we're talking about, yeah. My next question is about how COVID manifested in your part of the world and how you came to understand that it was going to affect things. Felicia, I'm gonna start you with this question because there are certain countries I feel like we've heard a lot about. Italy, for example, that was early affected, but I don't really know how things have panned out in South Africa. Can you tell me a little bit how you became aware of this imminent pandemic? Our first
2: understanding was seeing how it was affecting America. We were then told that we would have to look at a lockdown. And when the lockdown came here, it was extremely quick. I think it was within two days. So people didn't have much time to go out and gather much of anything. And the lockdown was really hard. So we went to what we call level five immediately, two days after the president had announced it. Level five meant that there was a curfew from six in the evening. Till the next morning, most businesses were not operating. It was only essential services. The other thing that was really big here was there was no sale of alcohol and there was no sale of cigarettes. This caused quite a lot of concern, but somehow people learned to live with it. It was winter. We thought it was the worst time we had no idea, and we just hope for the best. We did have a really interesting reaction. I don't know if you realize that Africa has actually not been as badly affected as the rest of the world. So gradually through the time, we went to level four. Six months into it, we have gone back to level one. That means for the most part, things are back to normal. Although places like churches have had to demarcate their seating so that there was enough space between everybody and people have to virtually book a
0: place if they're wanting to go to church. Okay. Carolyn, can you tell me about how you became aware of the coronavirus pandemic and that it was going to be something that was going to affect everything?
1: I'm an avid watcher and reader of the news, so I heard it on national news <clears throat> about the spread of, of the virus, particularly from Seattle. And as it came across the United States and grew, and the concern grew, and our governor here in Ohio had um, an extensive lockdown and required mask, And of course, there was a lot of flack about wearing the mask, which has become very politicized. A lot of people didn't want to wear the mask. And I found it extraordinary that there were so many people that believed the virus was fake. And this is in my little area of Ohio, which is largely Republican. People thought this was a hoax. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand why people didn't see this as being real when so many people were dying. And, of course, um, African Americans were disproportionately affected. More of us were dying than anyone else. And that's because we're the service workers and predisposed to certain illnesses. And so many within the culture don't have adequate medical care. So COVID just loomed heavily over the African-American community. And my husband's first cousin who lived in Iran and was a physician passed away from COVID. And I was very concerned about my son, who's a physician here near me in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was concerned about him and the lack of PPE for doctors and hospital workers. That just blew my mind that these supplies were not readily available for the medical community. Then my ex-research assistant, who lives just one block from me, she got COVID as well as everybody in her family. Then my photographer got COVID, and my sister-in-law got COVID, and 18 members of the network since March have passed away from COVID. Oh my goodness. It's been devastating. I'm heartbroken at seeing the reality and the horror, the horror that this virus has brought to so many people and so many families. It's been devastating and it's devastating to know we as such a powerful country have not, have not been able to contain this virus. We can't even manage it. All of our exhibitions were postponed or just canceled. There were three exhibitions traveling. Those exhibitions were canceled. My speaking engagements were canceled. The workshops that many network members were giving were canceled. Everything, everything was canceled. So a lot of people lost their livelihood because we have a lot of artists that depend on their workshops, their lectures. So all that was just shut down. We're just coming back to seeing normal operations now in museums. So we're somewhat getting back on track insofar as being able to exhibit our work.
0: Were you very much in touch with the members of the group to try and create some sense of support? There's a core group of us that are very active and I'm in touch
1: with those members all the time. Then we had many, many network members that were making masks. They were making masks for people in the medical field, for funeral workers, friends, neighbors. In fact, at this point, we've made over 90,000 masks. Oh, good heavens. That's on a national level as a group. Then, because everybody was on lockdown and kind of getting crazy in isolation, and they were making these masks, I thought, well... to Relieve the monotony, I conceived of a mask contest. And I put out a call for people that were making masks to submit an image of your mask. And the network would give three small prizes for the mask that a jury found to be the most creative. And it was fun.
0: What were the most creative masks like? Can you describe a couple? If you go to the
1: Women of Color Quilters website, wcqn.org, you can see all the masks that were submitted. Some of them were very colorful and a different use of materials, everything from fabric to toothpicks. Artists are very creative, so this was a good thing, I think, to have this mask
0: contest. I'm just going to it at the moment, actually. It's called the Unmask Your Creativity Contest. Yes. Oh my gosh, you're right. It's made out of toothpicks. Yes. That's extraordinary. So I'm going to post a link to this in the notes that accompany this podcast. But there is a mask here that sort of looks like a lion's beard or something that's made out of toothpicks. I'm just scrolling down here. There's some lovely ones. There's one that's in the shape of a heart. There's one that's in the shape of a butterfly. There's also one that's quite horrific. There's a mask, but then there's these kind of spikes going through it. And at the top and the bottom, there's little banners. The banners read together, can't breathe. That's obviously a reference to other stuff that's been happening during this time. Felicity, tell me about what happened with your group when COVID hit. Right,
2: so the Good Quilters Guild, which is the guild that meets once a quarter, they put out a mystery quilt challenge at the start. Every month you get various instructions. So initially you'll get the suggestion for colors and the following month you'll get suggestion for a particular type of block. And you'll go through several months where you make blocks and then they start showing you what you're going to put together. So you never, until really close to the end, do you um, see how the quilt will eventually look. I don't generally participate in mystery quilts. I like to know what I'm going to be making. However, I'd chosen fabric that I really love, and I was really excited that this was going to be a wonderful quilt. But as I started to actually assemble the quilt, I started to become more and more horrified at what I was seeing. I didn't like the quilt. It had too much happening. And in the end, I just hate this cult. Oh, no. (laughs) I call it Corona Chaos. So in a way, perhaps, it's a useful tool to use. And I'm pleased that I did it because you learned additional techniques. But I really, really will not be doing another mystery quilt. And then with my local group, we... Stopped meetings, of course, and we would chat on a daily basis via WhatsApp. For myself, I looked forward to the fact that I was going to have the opportunity to complete UFOs and to learn new techniques on my own. UFOs? Oh, uh, unfinished objects. You know, as a quilter, we always hope that we go from start to end. And end up with a usable piece afterwards. But that's a little bit of a pipe dream, I suppose. So you land up with a whole lot of pieces that you don't finish for whatever reason. Most quilters will have UFOs. And so, but the plan for me was I will be finishing UFOs and I will make sure that I psych myself up to finish stuff even if I didn't like it. So to a large degree, I did stick with my plan and I'm happy that I finished quite a number. All this, we would communicate within the group via WhatsApp on a daily basis. We were in constant contact and we, I think, originally thought that the lockdown wasn't going to be that long. When we realized it was, we started to have video meetings and this actually demonstrated how much COVID had affected some of the members. You know one of the women was really quite emotionally badly affected and was unable to do any work at all and this was three months into the COVID. We had about a six-month lockdown So we did try to encourage her and the girls then took it up on a more personal basis where we would phone her through the week. So we'd all take turns to phone her through the week, find out um, what the biggest challenges were and try to encourage her to at least occupy herself because we have evolved to be quite an intimate group. So there's much more support than just the quilting. We all felt or most of us felt that in order to get through this, if we kind of kept busy, it would be a great help to us. So I think that with the first meeting, which was then six months later, we realized that she had picked up to a degree. So she's a very good knitter and she had managed to knit
0: a couple of things. Okay, so you've actually met in person now, have you? We have. We had our first meeting in October.
2: We always do have a very close feeling, but there was a bigger appreciation of the physical connection. Although, of course, there was social distancing. I had set up the chairs at the correct distance. Everybody wore their masks. There was sanitizer on the table. So we observed all the necessary rules, but just to be within an area where we could communicate made a big difference. So instead of then having the second meeting a month later, I changed it to two weeks. And so we had a repeat, and I found that there wasn't that much quilt interaction. There was more just the socializing
0: It was just so necessary at the time. And during the time that you have all been working on these quilts and these unfinished objects, have you been learning new techniques or new ways of doing things? Has it allowed you to expand your craftsmanship, do you think? For me, definitely, yes. And I,
2: you know, having planned that I was going to do a certain amount actually exceeded the amount. And that goes for some of the other people in the group as well. There was about a quarter of the people who just went way over the top and finished just so many more quilts. And then there was the grouping who virtually did nothing. And then there was the the middle group that continued to kind of work constantly at just what they were doing. So it was very interesting to see the range of behavior through the time which no doubt had to do with people's psychological state
0: yeah i'm curious about that do you think you'd have to be in a reasonably good state to be able to do all that work or was that a way of reaching a good state or how do you think that worked i think that overwork was
2: another way of escaping which was the other end of the inability to work there was this sort of hiding yourself away and just working until you were falling over, you know. I mean, I can remember sitting at the telly and watching the news and going cross-eyed because I was crocheting in front of the telly. That desire to keep your hands busy was soothing and a way of enabling you
0: to carry on. Carolyn, what about you? You were still curating stuff, but you had to change the way you were curating. Actually,
1: it was during the pandemic that George Floyd was murdered, and I'm on the board of the Textile Center in Minneapolis.
0: He was killed in Minneapolis,
1: right? Yes, and I thought, geez, I had to do something because his murder was so horrific, and seeing What actually happened in real time just broke my heart. I decided to blanket the city with seven exhibitions, quilt shows on race, racism in America, police brutality, and a memorial for people that had been killed by the police. And I put out a call for entry for two jury shows within that series of seven exhibitions. And people from around the world answered me. Anyway, there are almost 140 quilts that are up in Minneapolis right now.
0: So these are physically up in the city in different places?
1: Yes. Museums are open on a limited basis with limited entry, so people are able to see the exhibitions. Then, also as a result of COVID and its disproportionate effect within the African-American community, the Women of Color Quilters Network received a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to make quilts about COVID and how it's affected the national African-American community and people's lives personally and what has gone on with COVID in their communities. So that quilt exhibition will be a virtual quilt exhibition and the grant has allowed stipend for each quilter that makes a COVID quilt. So it's one way to compensate the quilters for lost income during the pandemic. This virtual exhibition will be forthcoming within the next four to six weeks on our website.
0: And have you had any feedback from the members about how they're feeling about making such quilts at this time? Is it helping them get through the time? Or is it, in fact, bringing their attention more to some of the ugly stuff that's been going on? I'm curious to know how they're responding. Mentally to this challenge? We have always
1: used our quilts as an outlet for whatever's going on in our lives and our community. This COVID pandemic is no different. People put their feelings in their quilts, their thoughts in their quilts. Most of the quilts are pictorial, and people are able to tell the story of how this. pandemic has affected the community, so that's important to have an outlet for your emotions and concerns through the eye of a needle and cloth. I often think of the quilters as like griots in Africa. They are storytellers and they tell the story of our culture and what's happening within our culture at any given time. So this is no different, this set of COVID quilts. It's no different from the quilts that we've made about the murder of George Floyd and racism in this country. This is what we have done as quilters within the body of the Women of Color Quilters Network for almost 40 years, telling these stories about the condition of African-Americans here in the United States, regardless of the subject.
0: Do you think it has any kind of cathartic effect on the maker? I
1: can only speak for myself, and the quilts that I make usually deal with social justice issues, or they deal with issues that pertain to my family and surroundings and I find it very therapeutic to make these quilts about what's going on around me. So I see relief and spiritual renewal in making the quilts but that's my assessment and each quilt maker has to speak for him or herself.
0: So that leads me to ask you, Felicity, how does um, quilting, how has quilting over this time affected your spirit and your frame and mind and your thinking? I
2: agree with Carolyn when she says that quilts are therapeutic. And she did say for herself personally, I do see that within my group that it helps people enormously. And what I've encouraged everybody to do from the start is to have a journal, start with a handwritten journal and evolve it into a textile journal in which you put your feelings and where you find yourself. So the women have started that and I'm hoping that it will have some kind of therapeutic effect. It certainly does for me. I had originally thought that I was not going to really be affected by it, but when I had The first physical meeting, I realized how much it did affect me. Even though I was able to finish much more work than I usually do, it had an enormous effect on me. I never undervalue the physical effects of meeting, but it appeared to be much more precious than I usually saw it. Also, during the one level of lockdown where we were allowed to go out during the day, in small groupings the quilter who's also a priest had an hour-long vigil outside her church she has a very tiny little church which originally was the slave church and it was just three of us and in a South African context it was quite visually impactful because it was a black woman priest and I'm seen as of mixed race so basically what would be called within South Africa colored so I'll be mixed I've I have a mix of a large amount of the different peoples around the world. And then the priest, who's the quilter, is a white woman. So there was three of us. And this was very powerful visually. And we stood on a corner where there's a lot of traffic going by. And this was in support of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter in America. And um, my friend had gone to make posters, so the three of us each had posters as well. And it was just an experience that brought back so much for me in regard to apartheid in South Africa. Even now, I feel quite emotional talking about it because, you know, our fight hasn't ended yet. (laughs) And it's sad to think that people don't understand that in order to move forward, we need to hold hands. We need to talk to each other. We need to discuss why we feel in particular ways. So that was a big experience for me and brought a lot of stuff back and brought a lot of, um, you know, the activism that I was involved in. So,
0: yeah. Right, during the apartheid era, yes. Karen, have you ever been to South Africa?
1: No, I have not. A few years ago, I co-curated with Dr. Marcia McDowell at Michigan State University. We did a commemorative exhibition to honor Nelson Mandela at a venue in Johannesburg. And over 70 network members went to South Africa to that exhibition. Unfortunately, I was not able to attend.
2: Well, I would like to invite uh, Carolyn out to Cape Town sometime. It would be an honor for me to host it. And, you know, I'm just so in awe of the work she's done with quilting. Yeah, so I would like to invite her out to come and see what what we do here. I would love to come someday. Let me know how we can entice you. (laughs) Thank you. What I would like to say, and I'd say it to encourage quilters in South Africa to understand the value that diversity brings. And um, so... I have participated in local exhibitions and I try to grow and encourage quilters of color to participate. But we do seem to struggle along in increasing the black quilters in South Africa and also the use of African fabric. There is a tendency to feel that it's inferior, which is terribly sad. Priority is always given to fabric that comes from the US or there's Japanese fabric. And my belief is, is that we really should see the value in all of that. And we should see the value in growing the black quilters in the country. And I will continue to be an activist for that cause for as long as I'm around. I think that's
1: admirable. And it's very unusual when you say there's not an appreciation of African fabric and here we can't get enough of it. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> it's strange It's strange how different countries see things. On another note to the diversity within the quilt community, I think that's important, okay? It's important on a human level around the world. It would be wonderful, wonderful if people could get together and just know each other. I often say that there are no strangers around me. In the quilt world, it does not matter what color you are. You don't meet strangers in the quilt world. We're all bound by the thread of the cloth. We're all bound through the the needles and cloth. And that camaraderie of quilt making, that commonality of quilt making, we share that. And it becomes a unifying factor for all the men and women involved in quilt making they want to share that love of quilting so that's one of the few things <laughs> one of the few things i find unifying here in this country
2: so i've just realized carolyn i think that perhaps if i told you i would take you to all the fabric shops that have <laughs> that have african <laughs> fabric I (laughs) might be able to entice you. You never know. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that.
0: <laughs> well, listen, I think that's an uplifting note on which to end this podcast episode and this conversation. So I want to thank you both so much for taking part. This is Felicity Khan from South Africa and Dr. Carolyn Mansloomi from Westchester in Ohio. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Felicity. It was great. The conversation was great.
0: Again, my guests today were Felicity Khan, who lives near Cape Town in South Africa, and Dr. Carolyn Maslumi, who joined us from Westchester in Ohio. And you can find out more about the work of both of my guests in the notes which accompanied this podcast. COVID Conversations, Life in the Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities discovery Theme grant initiative. A great many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, too many to name here, but I would like to express special thanks to Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Patterson, and Nick Spitulski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening.